This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, the Indian B-side gives the Aussies fits at the Gabba. Christmas arrives late for James Harden. Conor McGregor likes to watch porn. And more petulant complaining from athletes getting to do their jobs. Another huge week. Let's do it. All right, Stewie. Well, as I said, it was another huge week in sport. What caught your attention and what did you miss? Well, what caught my attention this week was a bit of a random one. I was watching the Rangers and Motherwell game last night. I have to say, really disappointing one-all result there. Yeah, you can't win them all. Well, we'd like to think we could, but... So does Jock Lander. Yeah, true. Well, one, one, down, one down, plenty <laughs> to go. Celtic did actually draw nil all, so not the end of the world for us. But no, as is the, the case with a lot of stadiums around the world, I noticed that Fir Park, which is the home of Motherwell, they had a lot of cardboard cutouts in the seats behind the goals. Brilliant but I was very pleased to see that the cardboard cutouts were socially distancing correctly <laughs> to reduce the spread of cardboard 19. <laughs> were they wearing masks? Uh, well, they were completely black, so you don't know. It's hard oh, to tell. Yeah, fair they enough, could fair have been. Enough. They were distanced. They were yeah. distanced. That's yeah. the important No thing. one wants cardboard 19. Nobody wants that, no. <laughs> uh, and I also saw a hilarious meme over the weekend with a photo of the new Brooklyn Big Three with a, a picture of Kevin Durant. Mark Henry wearing a Brooklyn jersey. For those unaware, Mark Henry is a WWE wrestler who weighed about, what, 400 pounds maybe? Sexual chocolate. Sexual yeah. chocolate, yeah. So very sharp dig at James Harden's weight. Yes, indeed. And then a blank space to illustrate the fact that Kyrie Irving would rather party than play. He's MIA, yeah. 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 How about yourself, Nate? What caught your attention? Well, Stewie, it's been a few weeks since we talked about her. We got so much uh, fodder from her early in the, <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> I can only mean Renee Grace. Oh, Yes. <laughs> Apparently, she feels like Donald Trump because she was kicked off Instagram for being too racy. She feels like a 75-year-old white guy with orange skin and <laughs> horrible hair. Well, based on Stormy Daniels and stuff, I'm sure he feels like her too. Well, I mean, she doesn't really look like his daughter, so pro- probably not. No, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> a couple of other things. My brother was watching How I Met Your Mother yesterday, and there was an episode where Brian Cranston probably my favourite actor these days, plays an arsehole of a boss to Ted Mosby, the architect, and there's this building that looks like a penis. Anyway, he's a real arsehole and he has a signed baseball of Pete Rose. And I was explaining to my brother that it was actually really clever writing because they could have just had any signed baseball, Babe Ruth or, you know, pluck a name from history, Ty Cobb, whoever you like. But they clearly knew their stuff or they did their research because, of course, Pete Rose is a disgraced ex-player who, based on performance, could be in the Hall of Fame. But based on the fact he used to bet on his own games, isn't and probably never will be in the Hall of Fame. So I thought that was really clever writing and just a good little joke for the sports fans there. Oh, and the other funny thing was that the baseball was not only signed by Pete Rose, but it was signed by him three times because Brian Cranston's character thought that it might be worth three times more money, I believe, for... (laughs) when he did finally get to the Hall of Fame, which, of course, will never happen. So I thought that was clever. That is clever. And I've saved the best for last, Joey. The uh, the last thing that caught my attention this week, I watched the curtain raiser of the NBL, Adelaide at Melbourne, and it was a really good close game for most of the way until Melbourne pulled away about midway through the third quarter, I think it was. Yeah, Jock Landau. Yeah, well, 1-0, so they've started well. But uh, funnily enough, ex-Wildcats coach Connor Henry. Didn't you try and get him fired one time? <laughs> well, that's another story for another day, my friend. But... Uh, Maybe. Uh, Anyway, uh, the camera went on him in the uh, timeout and he started to talk about a play and he's he's just going about a normal timeout 
And then he gets sidetracked and he says, basically, in that play, you over-dribbled. And then he got completely sidetracked and he just starts going around the circle going, you over-dribbled, you over-dribbled, you over-dribbled. He said five players over-dribbled. Then he said, I over-dribbled, pointing to himself. And then this is the best bit. He goes, you fucking over-dribbled and you haven't even fucking played. <laughs> and then, of course, there was the uncomfortable Dwayne Russell going, uh, sorry if that offended anyone. Uh, we, uh, you know, and you, you love that. But uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. And actually, I, I'm I'm disappointed he said he himself over dribbled because I felt like he hurt the message a little bit. It kind of brought humor into a bit of levity into it when it was actually probably an important message. I actually found that most of the stuff he did with the Wildcats was dribble. So well, yeah, like I said, we'll get there one day. But yeah, and and to be honest, Adelaide did shit the bed. Like they were right in the game, and then they just completely gave up and stopped executing. But I tell you what. That young Giddy is going to be a very good player. And I can totally see why there's NBA buzz about him. Definitely. What'd you miss, mate? God, it's a bit of rinse and repeat, sadly. The misses at work again over the weekend. I missed the first session of day three of the Aussies in India. But I didn't miss the fact that Warney is persisting with that stupid fucking hat. <laughs> I mean, at least he's committed to it, I guess. But it's just... Maybe he's uh, got a sponsorship. Yeah, he must too. <laughs> From Jimmy Cleaners. What did you miss? Well, it was there was just so much on. There was so much on. I wish I'd seen a little bit more NBL. As I said, I did get to see one game. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more and I would like to have seen a little bit more cricket too. I didn't see all of the Scorchers game, although that turned to shit after a very good start in Canberra. So, but hey, there's not enough hours in the day, are there? And we we have commitments. But still got to see a lot of sport and look forward to talking about it today. Now, a bit of a special news roundup. We're going to focus entirely on the Australian Open because there's just so much going on there. Yeah, we could have done an entire news roundup plus this, but yeah, <laughs> we'd be talking for hours. Yeah, so. yeah. So, yeah, the Aussie Open starts three weeks from today and the tournament is already a massive clusterfuck. I mean, the craziness probably started with a qualifying match between American Dennis Kudla and Moroccan Elliot Benchetri in Doha. Sounds like a cough medicine. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny that because it sounds like what's apt. Yeah, sounds like Kudla's probably going to need it. Mm. So this was weird. Kudla's up a set in five three, but they decided during the middle of the match to tell him that he had tested positive for COVID. Don't know why you wouldn't have. I don't know. Waited Waited until until the result came through. But but so surely you would think right. Well, that's it. The match is called off. Would have thought so. Nope. Mm. The tournament said that if Kudla could win the next game, which would have then obviously won him the match he would win in advance, which is pointless because he's positive for COVID, so he can't play. Mm. If Benchatrick had made it 5-4, Kudla would have been defaulted and Benchatrick would have advanced. But he wouldn't have because he would have been quarantining. Exactly. Mm. So what the hell? Yeah, oh, it's bizarre, isn't it? What a horrible start. Well, and how would Benchatrick feel if he caught it? Like, it's one thing to quarantine because you're a close contact, but no one actually wants this thing, apart from those idiots that go to parties in America. I don't know if those parties are still going on now that we know a little bit more. But, like, he would have been within his rights to say, no, he's defaulted now, I win, don't you reckon? I would have thought so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's nuts. And then came the announcements. Andy Murray tested positive. Madison Keys tested positive. Amanda Anisimova tested positive. Dominic Tiem's coach, Nicholas Massu, was positive. Pretty big names. And then Tennis Sangren announced that he boarded a plane on a flight to Melbourne despite testing positive, tweeting, wow, I'm on the plane. Maybe I just held my breath too long. Like, why would you even get on it's, the plane? Yeah, that one's a real head scratcher. It's, yeah, it's, it's just hard to fathom the mindset that so many of these, these athletes have. 
So now we're in a situation where we've had, I believe it's three flights that have come in, possibly more now with people that have been infected with COVID. Mm. And we've got 72 players that have been forced into a 14-day hotel mm. lockdown. Yep. That's a significant part of the draw, 72. It's, it's huge. <laughs> it's huge. It is absolutely huge. I mean, we've got one of our good friends who's just come back from Norway. They've completed their 14 days and they said it was okay. They made the best of it. So I've another friend from the States who's just started quarantine, actually. Yeah. yeah. So shout out. I mean, it's not fun, but it's not the end of the world. No. But there've been complaints already. People have had some pretty legitimate complaints. Yulia Putintseva had a mouse in her room for quite a while, <laughs> which is probably not what she wanted. But then you've had other stuff that isn't maybe quite as relevant. You know, the, the food is always something that, that yeah. people complain about, the facilities. Basically just reiterating that as athletes, they're far more important than rules or the safety mm. of anyone in the country that they're fortunate enough to be able to travel to. Mm. And then you had Novak Djokovic who one-upped everyone by putting down a list of demands to the tournament organiser. So I'll give you the list of the six things that he has demanded. So fitness and training material in all rooms. Mm, okay. Decent food for elite athletes following players taking aim at the meals on offer. Mm. Reduce the number of isolation days for players in quarantine and carry out more tests to confirm they're negative. Permission to visit your coach or physical trainer as long as both test negative. Grant both the player and their coach permission to be on the same floor of the hotel and move as many players as possible to private houses with a tennis court to facilitate training. Mm. So... Dan Andrews, the Victorian Premier, was brilliant, stated, people are free to provide a list of their demands, but the answer is no, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> are any of uh, these conditions fair? Uh, I don't know. I, the, the, other, the other thing about this is, have, have the goalposts been moved on the players? So I don't have a lot of sympathy for the players if they knew what they were getting into and it is ad, as advertised. And that's what I've heard is that it, it is as advertised. Well, if it's as advertised, then... Bloody suck it up, guys. You earn a pretty penny just from losing in the first round. Yep. It's a decent amount of money. So, yeah. I, yeah. What about the first two? Fitness and training material in all rooms. Well, it depends what that is. I mean, how do you define that? What, does everyone get a, a treadmill? treadmill? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's pretty hard to do, I would have thought. I mean, potentially. I mean, little weights they could bring them, but, yeah. you know. Even if it's just a fitness ball or something like that. I mean, I think that's a fair. Oh, look, depending on the level, it's fair. That's yeah, a, that's yeah a fair depending fair. on the level of equipment. And when they say decent food for elite athletes, Maybe they could order in from nearby restaurants. I think that's potentially they could they could come up with an arrangement that's even fair. with yeah. But the other stuff, I mean, reducing the amount of days, like why why should you be able to just because you can hit a tennis ball? Well, right? and again, what I think they've capped the amount of international people coming in to what thirty thousand or no, it's like three thousand a, a week or something. Oh, I don't know. The numbers, it's bugger all. Yeah. I think so. So these players are basically they've jumped the queue ahead of. Australian citizens yep. that are stuck overseas. So they should consider themselves lucky because, again, this is an opportunity to win lots of prize money, even if you lose in the first round. Exactly. So not a lot of sympathy from the residents of Victoria or anyone in, in probably anywhere, really. Yeah. And then probably the other big issue that's come up is some of the players landing in Adelaide where mm. they aren't put into lockdown because of some precursor to the summer of tennis called a day at the drive you got the likes of Nadal, Tim, Djokovic, Williams, Halep, and Osaka. Players are allowed more than two members of staff with them. Some of them have up to 10. They have a gym they can access in their hotel. They can use their five-hour blocks just for tennis rather than, you know, getting on the treadmill, running around, all that sort of stuff. This hardly seems fair. 
It's it will definitely be if it goes ahead, and I'm not convinced that it will. Mm. The most asterisk laden Australian Open ever, probably by a long margin. No, it's not fair. Some players will have much better preparation than others. Much better. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know if there's any real way to make it feel fair to any of these guys. I mean, it sounds like they're they're doing it pretty rough in these fancy hotels. Oh, I know, I know. You know, earning six figures just for losing in straight sets. It's a hard life. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, ordinarily you would say advantage big-name players, maybe not at the moment. But, mm. but look, there is one really cool ray of sunshine that's come out through all of this. Britain's Francesca Jones has qualified for the Open, hoping to inspire some other people. She was born, oh, it's a great story. She was born with, with ectodactyly ectodermal dysplasia, which has resulted in her having three fingers and a thumb on each of her hands and three toes on one foot and four on the other. So basically what it means is her entire game works slightly differently to everyone else, but it's just such a huge moment to see her proving doctors wrong and really showing people with, with this sort of illness that you can actually do amazing things. Oh, absolutely. Like to, to be missing a finger on both hands in a it's racket huge. sport, fantastic story. Congratulations to her for qualifying and, yep. and who knows, she might even win a match against someone who's had to sit in a hotel room for 14 days and not been able to train. Would not be disappointed if that happened. No, me neither. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming up in the next three weeks as we work towards what is hopefully the start of the Australian Open. But yes, yes. Who knows where we'll be in seven days' time. I think it's going to have to go ahead because everyone's already here, but, geez, it's going to be compromised. It will be. Yeah. All right, Stewie. Well, we've been kind of avoiding this a little bit. We've kind of talked around the edges of this one for months because the worst kept secret has finally happened. Yes, James Harden. The Kabaddi World Cup is coming to Perth. (laughs) I was was wondering when the next Kabaddi World Cup reference was going to be. Every week. No, not that. Harden has become the first defending scoring champ to change teams since Tracy McGrady in 2004-05, and he is now a Brooklyn Net. Joining Kevin Durant, the two of them, Harden and Durant, are two of four players since 1976-77 with three consecutive scoring titles, and they've won seven of the last 11 scoring titles combined. So Brooklyn now have a lot of firepower. Now that it's official, we can finally talk about this one in a bit more detail. I'll read the trade. So the Brooklyn Nets acquired James Harden and a 2024 second round pick from the Cavs. The Houston Rockets acquired Victor Oladipo, Dante Exum, Rodion Kuroks, four first round picks and four first round pick swaps. The Pacers have acquired Karis LeVert and a 2023 second round pick from the Rockets. And finally, the Cavaliers have acquired Jarrett Allen and Torian Prince because they don't have enough centers. <laughs> They're basically the Cleveland centers. That's like, that's their, their team. So by the way, Houston's picks from the Nets 2022, 2024 and 2026 and one from the Cavs via the Bucks 2022. So they'll have potentially three first round picks next draft. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. We'll get to making cases for why each team improved shortly, but just have to look at the fallout from Harden leaving Houston first, a place he hasn't wanted to be for quite a while now. It's basically the only entertaining version of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here (laughs) in existence. But it's been fascinating to read through the thoughts of Harden as well as DeMarcus Cousins and and John Wall and Eric Gordon and a few of these other guys about the whole situation. It was absolutely hilarious to hear Harden say after their win against Orlando yesterday, I'm very unselfish. Uh, Yeah, okay, yeah. It's kind of funny how players like him and Russell Westbrook, unfortunately, as well, they can have so many assists, but they appear to be nothing but selfish on Mm. the outside, only Mm. thinking about themselves. 
He was also quoted as saying the Rockets just aren't good enough and that he didn't think the situation with the Rockets could be fixed and he'd done everything that he could for the Rockets, which all of that is laughable. Well, yeah, let's think about that. So first he got in Dwight Howard. That didn't work. Then he got in Chris Paul. That didn't work. Then he got in Russell Westbrook. That didn't work. So the team has basically bent over backwards and done everything he's asked the decade he's been there. Apparently none of it's his fault. No. No. Don't be silly, no. No, I know, I know. How dare I? He doesn't travel either. (laughs) (laughs) But no, look, it's it's interesting. I'll read you a couple of quotes. So one first from DeMarcus Cousins, and then we'll get into one from, from Eric Gordon. So Cousins said, obviously it's disrespectful, but everyone has a right to their opinion. We feel a certain type of way about some of his actions. Mm. This is the nasty part of the business that kind of gets swept under the rug. You deal with some of these things when guys are in positions of being franchise players or whatever the case may be. It's usually sometimes a nasty breakup. Don't know why he said usually sometimes. It's one or the other. Just the approach to training camp, showing up the way he did, his antics off the court, the disrespect started way before. This isn't something that all of a sudden happened last night. But with that being said, like I said, this is the nasty part of the business. So it is what it is. Mm. So pretty straightforward there. He's not happy. No, and you can read between the lines that, and he's right. He's right. James Harden has acted like a petulant child, but it's worked for him. And this is the modern NBA. Act like a dick and it works, you know? And then we move on to Gordon. Obviously, from the summer, since the season started, you could tell he didn't want to be here. It gives us a chance to get a real direction from everyone else on the team not to have to worry about his situation and we can just move forward. For me, knowing him, I don't think he meant it as far as to really disrespect us. I think he just wanted a different situation. He's shown that. He also said it. He wanted his way out. He got it. By the way, he could have been a free agent in a season Mm. and he still could. Yeah. So he could have just played out and left as well. Yep, exactly right. So which of those two do you think is closer to the truth? Oh, I think Gordon's being very diplomatic. He obviously played with him longer than Boogie did. Boogie's only been there this season, so they played, what, eight games together, something maybe? Yep. So I think Boogie's a bit more raw and Eric's maybe a bit more diplomatic, but I'd say they bo- they probably both feel the same way. They're probably both pretty pissed off. Okay, that's interesting. What do you think? I mean, I think Gordon's is probably closer to the truth personally. Like we know Boogie's an emotional guy. He actually went as far as to say he signed with Houston for John Wall, not for James Harden. Right. So it's very clear how the he Kentucky feels connection. About, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. also clear how he feels about Harden. Mm, mm. He obviously felt slighted by it. I, I think, yeah, I think Gordon's is maybe it's maybe slightly more towards his. Look, I don't condone what he did. We obviously go back to the Kawhi Leonard issue with Spurs a few years back as well. So I, I've seen you go through that with your team. Yep. It's, you know, it's horrible. The breakups with these superstars, unfortunately, nowadays, as you say, they're not they're not great. No. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see how this has all gone. Boy, I cannot wait for Brooklyn playing Houston. Oh, yes. Yes. Do you reckon? I think DeMarcus Cousins could be laying some pretty hard fouls. He may get ejected. Yeah, well, hey, it'd be worth it. He'll get his his worth, money's worth. How good would that be? Oh, that'd be great. So I guess I want us to maybe take a quick look at how each team fared in this trade. Now, I've kind of made a point for how I think each team has maybe won the trade or not so much won or lost the trade, but how they've potentially improved or gotten worse. Mm -hmm. So we'll start off with Brooklyn. So they'll obviously feel like they won the trade. The the rule generally historically is that the best player to come out of the trade, the team that gets them, wins the trade. Brooklyn get the best offensive player in the game right now to go with Durant and Kyrie, assuming that he comes back anytime soon. Like if Harden could actually play more than a lick of defense, 
he'd be a five-time MVP. He'd have probably won a championship or two yeah, by now. Yeah, right? yeah. Like he's that good. And I know I'm not. He's probably my most hated player in the. He is my most hated player in the league, and that's pretty clear from anyone that's listened to us. But I don't dispute his skill. Like I said, him and Durant have shared in seven of the last eleven scoring. So he's an incredible scorer. He's an incredible passer. He's an incredible player on the offensive end. Yes. And I, and I was listening to the low post. Zach Lowe was examining his playoff record, and I always referred to them as. <laughs> The regular season regular Rockets. Regular season yeah. Rockets because yep. they're shit in the playoffs. And sure enough, Zach found that all of Har- nearly all of Harden's best games were when it didn't really matter as much. Like a game one or a game two. Or like, a, you know, keeping a series alive when they were previously down 3 nothing. Yeah, okay. You know, and then they, they end up losing 4-1. Yeah. Like, big deal, you know? Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, he'll be great in the regular season. And indeed, he had a 30-point triple-double in his first game with the Nets. With nine turnovers. Well, yeah, nearly a quad. Mm. But I'm really sceptical about the playoffs. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So, obviously, we've established that. In terms of what they gave up in terms of players, Karis Levert's a stud, okay? But he's not going to be playing for an indefinite period of time, unfortunately. Yeah. Sad, that one. Yeah, they found a small mass on his left kidney as part of the physical leading up to the trade. So, that's not great. No. Jared Allen, he's a defensive beast, but DeAndre Jordan still has something left in the tank. Kevin Durant's a sensational help defender. He's a really long player, so he can block shots. Well, this is my concern, though. So now Kevin Durant is going to have to carry the pail on the defense. He's now their best defensive player with Allen gone. Mm. So he's going to have to expend a lot of energy on the defensive end, sometimes playing on fours and fives, and carry the pail at the scoring end. Well, he and he's coming off an Achilles. But he may not have to now because he's got Harden. So, well, so yeah, but he's the alpha, let's face it. He's well, the top dog. Well, we'll get to this. We'll get to we'll that, that too. We'll get to that too. They've also lost Torian Prince. He's a really good 3 and D guy. Obviously, Harden is Harden. He takes care of the three part. Yep. And then Rodian Kourouk was out of the rotation anyway. So, you know, you can make a case that they've won. Throwaway player. They, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In terms of what they've let go versus what they've got back, you could argue that Brooklyn has has done okay there. Where they might lose, though, is in the, the chemistry department. Oh, and, yeah, big time. Aside from, obviously, all the draft picks as well. We'll you know, yep. worry about that even. Yep. It's the old one-ball dilemma. Oh, yeah, there's only one ball to go around. Like, if you look at LeBron's big three in Miami and Cleveland, you had Chris Bosh or Kevin Love, who was happy to be the third option. Kevin Garnett was the same for Boston. I mean... And these are guys that are more likely to rebound or play defense, which is not James Harden's forte or Kyrie Irving's. And that's it. Who would then become the third? Is it Kyrie? It has to be. I think it kind of has to be, but he is not going to be happy with that. No. At all. Brian Windhorst recently reported that during the Cavs championship run, he did not talk to his teammates for a month, heading Mm. into the finals. Wow. Yeah. So he gets petulant too. He gets pissed off real yeah. easy. So real easy. this is what's going to be interesting for me is watching how this all works. And I've got a stat for this too. So in clutch time since 2013, their isolation usage are ranked Harden number one, Irving number six, and Durant number eight across the entire league. Mm. So we've got three top 10 usage guys at the end of games. They all want the ball in their hand. They all want to take that last shot. Yep. And I dare say Irving's quite successful in that time, but I have a feeling he'll be the one that becomes number three. He will be. And then also to quote you again, Harden hasn't won shit. So good teams will will be attacking him in the pick and roll. He'll end up guarding the likes of Anthony Davis or Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid if we're talking about the Eastern Conference now. Either way, they're going to be a tough out in the playoffs if they stay healthy, but 
chemistry is going to be oh, really, it's huge, really interesting huge, to watch. Huge. And now their bench is, is weaker too. It's it's huge. Mm. Now, Cleveland. Obviously, the Cavs were irrelevant before this started. They're still irrelevant now. Yep, stockpiling centers. They turned Dante Exum, who can't stay on the court for any length of time, into yeah. elite rim protection in Jared Allen, who we've just spoken about. And someone pretty decent to help the young Cleveland guys with shooting. I mean, if you look at Torian Prince, he's just under 37% in his career. The Cavs, oh, he's a decent pickup. Yeah. yeah. Cavs, Cavs are 24th in three-point shooting at the moment. So he gives them someone else, kind of spreads the floor a little bit more for the likes of, of Garland and Sexton. So, you know, hopefully that helps. And we know Twin Towers can work, but Andre Drummond and, and any, Jared Allen. And anyone. <laughs> well, they are not Twin Towers that can work no. because they don't, they're not jump shooters. They don't have any range. They're both basically operate within a very small, you know, circumference around the ring. So that's like the worst double center pairing you could have. I've got one worse for you. Okay. Jared Allen and JaVale McGee. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> McGee won't get minutes. <laughs> no, no, but but that's that's because there's Larry Nance Jr. there too, you know. Yeah, but that's Kevin also Love. that's where Cleveland might actually lose and, and go backwards on this is that Allen is basically a double up of JaVale McGee. They've had to then get rid of Thon Maker because they've got too many centers. So it's, it's not amazing, I guess, adding duplicate players. No. I suspect they're going to sell Drummond or Allen to the highest bidder. Yeah. I before think, trade deadline. I think that probably makes sense. That's the only way I can see it working. Yeah. Indiana. Mm. Now, this is basically a straight-up Oladipo for Levert trade. Yes. If you look at it. Yep. They're very similar players, except Levert's a little bit bigger. Bit younger. Relies a little bit more on the mid-range. Where they win this, though, is Levert just signed a three-year deal. Mm. Oladipo expiring contract and the rumor was he was going to bail anyway even though the state of indiana love him because he played his college ball there apparently the word was he was leaving as soon as he could so they had to get something for him so this is decent in that sense it it is definitely i i think having someone that gives them a little bit more certainty in terms of being locked into a longer deal it's yeah it's a great move for indiana it if if levert can get back onto the court obviously and that is a big if Mm. it bolsters their starting five even more i think it makes them even stronger than they already were. So I, I really like this trade for Indiana. If, if it, Yeah, there's a big if on that one. It's a big there's, if. There's a few big ifs on this whole thing. There's so many draft picks moving around. Yeah. And we can't really evaluate it for another five years, probably. Very, very true. So it's all speculation. Yep. But And obviously, yeah, for Indiana, just to finish off on them, where they lose it, again, is the other side of the, the if. If Levert's health doesn't come back, then... You know, they've lost a really good player from their starting five and all of a sudden they drop back. Into In a year and... where they were looking pretty good. Very, very good. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, Houston. I honestly believe they actually win this trade. I do too. Yep. Yep, I do too. They give up a guy who doesn't want to be there. Yep, good riddance. Your team, Victor Oladipo, great scorer, will actually play defense. Yep. You have John Wall, you've got DeMarcus Cousins, you've got Christian Wood. And all... you've got a shitload of picks coming. And Exactly. And... All unprotected as well. All unprotected and pick swaps. And Harden and Durant could bail from Brooklyn in a year or two. So That's what Houston is banking on big time. Oh, exactly. And that's why Houston have done this. And do you know what would be crazy? If they both pissed off to Houston in a couple of seasons. And then they had all those picks too. Do you know the worst part about all of this? It fucks OKC over. Oh, does it? Because we're relying on Houston being being Uh, rubbish to get all of their picks. Yeah, yeah. so, well, hey, hey, all three of those core guys in Houston are a little bit injury rattled. Yes. So there's still no guarantee they'll have a great season this season. No, exactly right. But uh, yeah, I think the future in Houston looks a lot better than it did. Yeah, it's just the long game. Now, where do they lose? 
I mean, obviously you'd rather not have got into that situation in the first place. Maybe you've got some short-sighted big-name superstars who get put off coming to Houston because they think that maybe it's not a place that superstars do well in. I don't know. I mean, that's probably... I think I think the main concerns are the new owner. I, I think people are a bit funny about the new owner. I think that's that's a key thing, yeah. Yeah. It's really weird, though. I actually believe that when all is said and done, this could be a trade that every team benefits from. Brooklyn could win a championship. Yeah. Houston have a boatload of these first-round draft picks. Indiana have Karis LeVert coming through, who could be really good. And Cleveland might get something pretty good for Jared Allen or whoever else they decide to trade, whether it be Drummond or Kevin Love. So you could potentially make a case that all four yeah, of these teams so. I think you're right. might actually win from yeah, this. Yeah, but I think Houston wins it ultimately, but time oh, yeah. will tell on that because they have to actually make good on the picks as well, of course, yeah. and it depends where they fall. Yeah. But okay. next year is meant to be a good draft. So they have three first-rounders next year. That's a good draft to have three first-rounders in. It is a very good draft, definitely. Yeah. I will say this, though. I don't think that it puts Brooklyn into favoritism to win the, the East. Well, that's the next question. A lot of people are saying, are they favorites to win the championship, let no, alone the East? Not even close. On the sports book, they, they raced up the tables to, into second behind the Lakers. I think that's a bit of a reach. Personally. I do too. Yeah, I do too. I, I still, do too. I still have them behind Boston. I still have them potentially behind Philadelphia if they can get past all their COVID stuff. Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Then that's go, just the East. And then you go to the West and you've got both LA teams are, are, are probably better. I expect Denver to pick up. I think Dem- yeah, Denver will pick up. Dallas will pick up. There's there's a lot of teams that, that will get a lot better. Phoenix are, are still good. I mean, there's, there's so many. Portland... Don't have Nurkic or Collins. Well, and that's yeah, that's going to hurt them. But they're eight and five, and they've got a really weak month coming up. I think the schedule for them starts getting a bit rough towards the end of Feb, so they could very easily still be doing okay there. It's got to be said though that Brooklyn are ahead of some of those teams you've mentioned in favoritism, surely. Potentially, yeah. But uh, I'm just saying, like, yeah, definitely. Well, the, the defense I really worry about. I really worry about the defense, yeah. and I really worry about Kevin Durant again. He's coming off an Achilles. He's going to have to carry a lot of work yeah. coming off an Achilles, which is a traditionally very difficult injury to come back from. And then we get to see how good Joe Harris really is. Because if he gets the ball. Well, no, because if... He well, should, if, he should no, get some if, open shots. He'll if, get a lot of open if, shots. If Durant gets injured, then yeah, well, yeah. Joe Harris becomes the third option. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's this has just put a huge, fascinating ripple into this season which was already fascinating to start for with. so many reasons yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely so Stewie I guess just finishing up on the Harden trade as much as we talk about the teams that made it there's one big team that by some reports were very close to making the trade and and some people actually thought it was going to go ahead you were saying that apparently they basically told Ben Simmons to pack his bag yeah and that's the Philadelphia 76ers did they dodge a bullet by not getting James Harden? My God, they did. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, I feel bad saying this because we've just talked about how good he is, but I honestly Well, he feel, is good, but he doesn't play defense honestly, and he's shit in the playoffs. I honestly feel that any team that doesn't have him dodged a bullet, basically. Look, it's, again, though, so much of this is going to come down to who is healthy. If you look at that trade, I think part of the problem was that Houston were asking for too much. Mm. They were asking for Ben Simmons, Matisse Thibel, and I think they wanted Maxi as well. They did, they did. Which, who, considering what he's just done, he started superbly well. Yeah, yep, yep. There's no way they were going to get all three. So, thankfully, his little outburst of scoring 
is probably probably save Ben Simmons from a trade to Houston. Yeah, well, maybe. So, and I think Houston, looking back on this, will be happy with that. I think they have a good thing going there. Oh, I think that team can win. Definitely. I'm not saying they will, but I think they can. Yeah, they're set up quite well. But no, definitely good news for any Ben Simmons fans and good news for Philadelphia. I really believe that. Yeah, I do too. One more question. Hmm. First, I'll echo the thoughts of the great Tony Kornheiser, who said... I love the trade because it makes it easier for me to hate the Nets even more now. <laughs> My question is, are they the biggest villains since the Detroit Piston bad boys? Kevin Durant turned into a heel. Kyrie Irving's a fucking fruit loop. Yeah. And James Harden is so unself-aware and a complete douche. I mean, I'm trying to think of another team that was maybe hated more. Yeah, I mean, they'd be hated more than the Golden State Warriors. I think people just hated them because they were good. Yep, they were successful. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think of other teams that that would have that many guys on it. I I think you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, I think they might be the new bad boys, except they probably just bad for a different reason. Yeah, they just don't yeah. have an enforcer like a Rick Mahorn. Yeah, at least the bad boys played defense. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With their fists. <laughs> and now, this week in sport history. January 18th, 2015, South Africa's AB de Villiers scores the fastest century in one-day international cricket history against the West Indies at the Wanderers in Johannesburg off just 31 balls. He had a pretty decent platform coming in at one for 247 in the 39th (laughs) over. After hitting his first ball for four, he just went berserk. His 50 came up off just 16 balls. Hmm. And 15 balls later, he raised his bat for a oh, century. That's nuts. It is crazy. The penultimate over from Dwayne Smith went 6 6 4 6 6 2 as part of Smith's four overs for 68 runs. Oof. And DeVillis was caught off the third last ball of the innings for 149 off just 44 balls in 59 minutes. Nine fours, 16 sixes. South Africa made two for 439. I mean, some of his shots over his leg side were just absurd, basically falling over and flicking them to the, to the mid-wicket boundary. The, yeah, the, the advent of the T20 game has created all it these shots. really has. What made it even better, though, was the fact the Proteas were wearing their pink strips to support breast cancer. So these highlights will continue to spread awareness oh, about that into the nice future. Touch. So it's a really, oh, really cool thing. That's excellent. Yeah. January 19th, 2013, Lance Armstrong admits to doping finally in all seven of his Tour de France victories. Didn't, of course, stop him from uh, tweeting out that photo of him lying under the framed yellow jerseys, of course, but Mm. not that they were worth anything now. (laughs) Didn't he tell his son to avoid juicing until he made the NFL? Yeah, he kind of alluded to that, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that's the same son whose number he forgot. Mm. <laughs> when he gave a motivational speech to the team. Yeah, from the 30 for 30, yeah. Always setting good examples. Yeah, not so good, man. January 21st, 1990. American John McEnroe becomes the first ever player to be expelled from the Australian Open after receiving three code violations in a fourth-round match against Sweden's Mikael Pernfors. The first was for standing about a foot in front of a lineswoman, eyeballing her while he bounced a ball on his racket. Thankfully, it wasn't off her neck. <laughs> <laughs> It's not cool footage, though, is it? It's, it's definitely horrible. intimidation. Oh, yeah, it's it's horrible. It's, almost, it's it's a kind of violence against women kind of stuff. Good. Like it's not good. It's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. The second was for smashing his racket, which is something that most players have done. And the straw that broke the camel's back was a verbal abuse violation after he swore at the umpire and tournament director. 
It turned out that McEnroe thought he still had one more warning left, but the rule had just been changed from four to three. So three strikes and you're out, John. Exactly. Yeah. McEnroe would miss the tournament the next year and play it for the last time in 1992, where he was knocked out in the quarterfinals. The crazy thing is he was such a nutcase on the tennis court, but he's one of the great tennis commentators of all time. Yeah. And I actually really like him now. I hated him when I was a kid. But... Well, I mean, it makes sense. He has great knowledge of the game, but yeah. now that it doesn't matter for him. Now that he's not playing. Yeah. 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 January 22nd, 2006, Kobe Bryant, may he rest in peace, scores 81 points in a 122 to 104 Lakers victory over the Toronto Raptors. It was the second highest game total in NBA history behind only Wilt Chamberlain's 100 point game, which happened in 1962. We watched this one, of course. We did. Yep. I managed to get my hands on it after it happened and we uh, watched it a couple of rooms down. We did. It was just. It was a weird game. It was, wasn't it? It was kind of the quietest 81 you'll ever see. Yeah. Like, it. Yeah, it didn't feel like he scored that many points. It was nuts. Yeah, I seem to remember about halfway through the game, you remarking, what, he's got 45? Yeah, yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean, even though we knew he went for 81. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. You did, you just thought he's only on like 25, 26 at the moment. And then, yeah, he's basically halfway there. So, yeah, I mean, that is just, it's probably one of the most efficient games that Kobe ever had, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. So it, it definitely helped. But I mean, some of the shots he's hitting over triple teams and stuff, it just... <laughs> It epitomized Kobe, really. He was just And really that's arguably around his peak too. Mm. So And should be noted, he had two assists in that game too. A whole two assists. Yeah. Wow. And probably ball slipped out of his hand, but <laughs> January 24th, 1999, David Duval eagles the 18th hole for a final round 59 to win the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic at PGA West by just one stroke. He became only the third player to fire a sub-60 round on the PGA Tour. And it's worth mentioning that after the fourth round, he trailed Steve Pate by six shots. Wow. We'll also mention, oddly, it was a five-round tournament, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but Duval just hit everything close. I actually watched the highlights of this again last night. He didn't make a putt from more than 10 feet in the round. He didn't have to because wow. he was putting everything to five, six feet. Yeah. He had 11 birdies, one eagle, and six pars. He birdied four of the five par threes and was five under on the par fives as well. Wow. They've now been, I believe, 10 sub-60s. Very few on par 72 courses, though. Duval's is just one of three to not include any sort of chip-ins from off the green. Mm. In his own words, he probably couldn't play better. <laughs> Understood. No shit. <laughs> By the way, last week we talked about Trump's course being stripped of a PGA tournament. Another one has happened. So the floodgates are opened on that. Good, good. This week in sport history. So, Nath, we've reached the end of the divisional round in the NFL. We sure have, yep. But I believe you've also got some news from the previous week. Yes, well, Doug Peterson. In fact, it might have even been, the news might have even been released as we were recording last week. Because sure enough, after we recorded, I opened up my phone. Well, actually, I think I was watching ESPN. So Philadelphia Eagles coach Doug Peterson, who was embroiled in that uh, tanking scandal last week, has got the ass. I still wonder if he's been scapegoated. I wonder if he got instructions from the ownership to throw the match so that they get a better draft pick, and they did, and they will. But who knows? Maybe mm. one day we'll find out. Anyway, great round of football once again, a divisional round full of all sorts of crazy things, including some pretty big injuries. So the NBC coverage, and I do, I love Al Michaels. Al Michaels and John Madden is possibly my favourite commentary team of all time. But Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth is really good too. I really like Chris Collinsworth. NBC had this great graphic about all the quarterbacks that were playing this weekend. So they had pictures of Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, and Jared Goff sitting at the NFC table. With SpongeBob SquarePants? 
<laughs> Not this week. <laughs> oh, bring back Nickelodeon. <laughs> but they were sitting at what was called the NFC table with their ages above them, 43, 42, 37, and 26, respectively. And then it zoomed back to the kids' table, which was the <laughs> AFC. <laughs> that and, is correct. And there it had Patrick, well Patrick Mahomes and Baker Mayfield, who are both 25, and Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen, who are both 24. So that was a really cool... Whoever came up with that, they had some great graphics throughout the entire game, actually. So I know previously I've gone chronologically. This time, I think I'll, as we get to the pointy end, I'll stick with the conferences, but I'll go chronologically initially. So, so the, we're going to start with the Colts here? No, the Colts didn't play, sadly. <laughs> Sorry. We'll start with the first game from the weekend, which was on Saturday in America, Sunday in Australia. The Green Bay Packers 32 defeated the LA Rams 18. It was the second youngest ever combined age between head coaches in a playoff game in the Super Bowl era. Sean McVay and Matt LaFleur are combined 76 years and 66 days. The fewest was Don Shuler and John Madden for 75 years and 253 days in 1970. Well, they'd be at the kids' table. Well, that's the, that's the crazy thing. So the coaches in this game are younger than three of the quarterbacks that were at the adults' table that I mentioned before, <laughs> playing in the NFC. No. So it, it's quite remarkable, really. They only had 9,000 people there, but I tell you what, those 9,000 Green Bay fans made a lot of noise. So hats off to them. And the, it was pretty bloody cold, the, too. The Cheeseheads do have... Oh, yeah, yeah. They're some such, of the greatest fans. Such yeah. a reputation as being the yeah. loudest. So, yeah, that's, There's some good fans there. That is good. As I mentioned last week, I thought that the Packers would win this one regardless of who they played. But the LA Rams, actually, they actually gave it a really good shot. And they do have an excellent defense. So they're actually 5-1 and one against NFC playoff teams this season. Although Cooper Cup was missing, who's a big wide receiver for them. And it was a big loss. They did have Aaron Donald playing. There was a bit of speculation that he might not. He just completed his fourth straight season in a row of 11 sacks. And there are people saying that if he finished today, he would already be in the Hall of Fame. Like, that's how much of a beast this guy is. And he's still got a long career ahead of him. So he's a really important player, but he was underdone. So he did miss decent parts of the game. He's really the linchpin to that defense. And they allowed the fewest points, total yards, and pass yards this season in the regular season. But alas, the Packers did win, and they did win fairly comfortably in the end. The Rams held tough pretty well in the first half. And they did give him a little bit of a scare in the fourth, but really the, the Packers cream rose to the top. And there's actually a play that I'd like to kind of rather than going through. Now, I, as I say, I did watch this one. I watched two of the four because two of them were today and I was at work. I will watch them later. I probably will watch one tonight after you go. But there's pretty much a play that kind of epitomizes the whole game for me. So Aaron Rodgers was backed up right in their end zone. He was nearly sacked for a safety five odd minutes into the third quarter but somehow managed to keep on his feet, scramble around and kind of defied all odds to hit Alan Lazard for about 10 yards before he ran for another 20 after the catch. And it kind of summed it up. LA was always putting pressure on, but the Packers always had an answer. And that kind of basically defined the game. So Green Bay controlled the line really well. They consistently gave Rodgers a great pocket to work out of and their running backs ran off good chunks of yards consistently enough to ensure that the Packers controlled the time of possession. It's got to be said that although they had far less time of possession, Goff was excellent. He really put a foot wrong. They did really well with the ball when the Packers did allow them to have it. But the Packers ran their hurry-up offense really well. They kept the Rams defenders on the field. They kept them guessing. They didn't kick their first punt until 7 minutes 30 left in the third. Wow. Uh, admittedly, I didn't see today's games, but I've got to say they really look like the Super Bowl favorites to me from what I've seen. 
And, you know, the Rams, again, you know, they gave it a good effort. They ran two unsuccessful plays out of the Wildcat offense, which had Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth really scratching their heads. And I was beginning to literally write notes to say, I don't know why they're persisting with this. But then, sure enough, they ran it again and they got a touchdown off is, it. Is this just pass it to Bryce Cotton and get out of the way? <laughs> kind of, no. It's oh. where a running back is standing in the quarterback position. Oh, yeah. And he could pass or he could run. It's a real guessing game for the defense. Cam Akers actually played quarterback in college, so he's a very good Wildcat player to have because he ran off a ton of yards last week, second most ever for a rookie, I believe. So very good threat, capable of passing. So yeah, they scored on that one. And they got a two-point conversion too, and that made it a seven-point game. But as I say, ultimately, Green Bay ran over the top of them. Now, the other game in the NFC, the Bucks 30 defeated the Saints 20, and they traveled to New Orleans. They've now won two road games this playoffs already. I mentioned the combined age of the quarterbacks last week. Their combined touchdown passes going into the game was 1,152. The next best was when Peyton Manning and Tom Brady met in the 2015 AFC Championship game where they had a combined 967. So I mentioned these guys are old. They've been around a long time. It's not a surprise that they had all those touchdowns together. The, the crazy thing for me about this is Mike Evans only had one catch. He's been the Bucks' best wide receiver all season, really consistent, really good I think I said he's had seven consecutive seasons of at least 1,000 catching yards. So to win by 10 on the road with your best receiver only having one catch is quite remarkable. The Bucks scored three TDs off four of the Saints' turnovers. Drew Brees was copping a lot on Twitter for his turnovers. Yeah, there was actually something after the game where Drew Brees' son got Brady to throw him a pass in the end zone. And I read a tweet that said he got Brady to throw it because he was worried his dad would throw it into coverage. Yeah, and ouch. Get picked yeah, up. yeah, but he did have three picks. So it's not a terrible and, cover. And, and two of those ended up being drives that, that worked their way down for touchdowns. Touchdown drives, yeah, right. So, yeah, yeah. Big. And the, I mean, the best play for the Saints was by their backup quarterback on a trick play. Jameis Winston had a 56-yard pass on a trick play against his old team. So that kind of sums it up. So now all the talk here is, is Drew Brees going to ride off into the sunset? But on the other hand, Tom Brady enters his 14th championship game, of course, 13 in the AFC with New England Patriots and now one with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFC. In the AFC, Ravens three at Bill 17. Now this one was the other one that I watched. A bit of a surprise. I thought I did think the Bills would win, but I thought the Ravens would put up a much better effort than they did. And look, we've talked about the regular season Rockets and James Harden being crap in the playoffs. Lamar Jackson's going to get a reputation very soon, if he hasn't already, about winning in the regular season and not doing too well in the playoffs. And regular season Ravens does roll off the top. It does, yeah. Just a little bit better than... (laughs) It didn't even occur to me. It rolls a bit better than Rockets for me. I don't know, but... I mean, I guess it doesn't help when Lamar Jackson comes off in the third quarter with a, with a concussion. No, no. And that is the big news out of this game. But he's got 16 wins in his first 19 road starts, including playoffs, which is a record. 333 rushing yards are the most by any QB in their first three games. And he's the first QB to have multiple 1,000-yard rushing seasons. He did it in just his third season. Again, though, not a great playoff record. Mm. Speaking of firsts as well, he had a first in that game. He threw his first ever red zone interception. Yes, and it was crucial too. Of his career. Yeah, it was absolutely crucial. And the Ravens' road winning percentage was really good. Their all-time road winning percentage is 65%. The rest of the league is 33. Wow. Which is about what you'd expect it to be. Oh, yeah. But to win two out of three road playoff games is very impressive. It is. Sadly, it was not this one. Justin Tucker, who's one of the best kickers, well, ever, actually. It's the first career game of his where he had two field goal misses under 50 yards. 
So a couple of key errors for some really important players for the Ravens was really their undoing there. Uh, admittedly, it was really windy there in Buffalo, but the Bills are looking pretty good. Their, and their first AFC championship since 1993. That's right. Absolutely right. Yep. So the Bills will move on to face the Kansas City Chiefs, the last team to punch their ticket through to the championship round. The Chiefs 22 defeated the Browns 17. And look, it's got to be said, the Browns put up a better fight than I expected them to. I thought last week was maybe their Super Bowl a little bit. And it was an incredible surprise as it was. They actually had 17,000 fans at Arrowhead, which probably helped get them over the line. It was a battle between a team that hasn't played in a divisional round since 1994 versus a team trying to be the first back-to-back Super Bowl winning team since the 0304 Patriots. It's very hard to repeat in the NFL. Now, I spoke of Breeze and Brady. These two in this game, Baker Mayfield and Patrick Mahomes, combined for 1,279 yards in a 2016 college game, which was an FBS record. So lots of cool little rivalries around. We talked about the old, this is the new. Plenty more to come in the same conference. Unfortunately, they also combined for one concussion in this game. Well, and that's right. So we've got to go there. Mahomes left in the third. And look, Mahomes was the first player since Steve Young to have three straight playoff games with a pass and rushing TD. But now he's in a little bit of doubt for next week. Now, early rumblings are that he will play, but with the concussion protocol... He didn't look great when he got up. Yeah, yeah. So there's maybe a bit of optimism there, but... And I I mean, I spoke about this in a previous episode about my experience when I had my concussion. Yeah, well, that's right. And, you know, I was still not feeling amazing five, six, seven days down the track. So there's every possibility that if it's a bad enough concussion, you know, him, he did, he had his head slammed back yeah, on yeah. the turf pretty hard. At very least, he may not be able to practice, even if he suits up. So that will definitely cost them. But the man that came in and saved the day was Chad Henney. Now, here's the name that I have. I didn't even know he was still in the league. He was six of eight passing for 66 yards, and he had 12 yards rushing on two carries, none more important than the rush and pass at the end on two separate plays. One where he rushed for nearly a first down, which they then did on fourth down because it was only fourth and inches. I can't believe the play call, but they threw it on fourth down. And Tyreek Hill, very smart. One of two players to have a 100-yard receiving, by the way, along with Travis Kelsey. Stadium bounds, game over. So Cleveland were absolutely coming home with a wet sail in that second half. But full credit to Henny and the Chiefs for holding on. I still don't know if... The Mahomes thing scares me. They've got a great team, but the Mahomes thing does scare me. There was actually something from this game I wanted to talk to you about, and it was the hit on Rashad Higgins by Daniel Sorensen that basically saved the touchdown. Yes. So it looked like Higgins was about to basically run into the corner, and Sorensen's hit it, and it's knocked the ball out. It's rolled out out of bounds in the end zone, which is a touchback. Yep, yep. Not a good place to fumble it when you're the offense. So I've got three questions here. Firstly... Is the touchback rule the dumbest rule in football in that situation? Yeah, so I understand the touchback off a kickoff. Yep. That's a very different scenario. Very different scenario. And, you know, if he'd fumbled it out of bounds at the one, they would have kept the ball at the one. But because he fumbled it into the end zone... The what? Chiefs got it back at the 20. The 20 exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's very costly. And and in a close, you know, in a, it could have changed the outcome of the game. Well, they went the length of the field and kicked a field goal. Yeah. So it's a 10-point turnaround yeah. potentially. So it was officiated correctly. We've got to we've got to stress that. But yes, it is a stupid rule. Okay. I, I don't I don't know why they wouldn't just make it the same as the fumble rule at the one. Now the second problem I have with this one is the helmet to helmet contact. Yes. Now that is a missed call. Now that is probably should have been a penalty. I probably should have got a fresh set of downs at the one. Yeah which you have to assume they're going to get over with one of those. Oh, well, you know, Nick Chubb's a very good running back. Uh, They have 
some good tall receivers. There's certainly options. There's every chance they would have at least got a field goal on that. Yeah. At the very worst, you're talking about them getting three instead of giving up three. Yeah. Now, I know, you know, sliding doors, you can't necessarily say that the rest of the game would have played the same way, but it ended up as a, a five-point game. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about a six-point swing there. So yeah, yeah. It, it is huge. I mean, to see that huge hit be caused by a helmet is it's disappointing. Yeah. And, and it brings me to my third question. You don't leave with your helmet these days. It's just not on you anymore. Just can't. Yeah. So is this yet another great example of why you should be able to review a play that hasn't been called? Yes. there's. I think NFL is one of the best officiated sports in the world. And it's partly because they have so many goddamn umpires. But two things that I have a real problem with. One, they blow calls dead far too early on potential fumbles. And sometimes guys could potentially have run it back for a touchdown, but they blow the ball dead so it doesn't count. And two, there are certain things that you're not allowed to review that you absolutely should be allowed to review. If you're only getting a couple of challenges, the door should be open for basically whatever you want, you know? So, yeah, absolutely, they should be able to. I mean, I've had this issue with American sports. Going back a couple of seasons, there was a a game where the Milwaukee Bucks came to Oklahoma City and Giannis scored a layup Uh, when his foot was out of bounds right in front of the umpire and we couldn't challenge it. Yeah, you should be able to review that. You absolutely should, yeah. But a surprisingly good game of football. Yeah, I look forward to watching that one. Absolutely. So there's two games next week, Nath. That's right. Who you got? Well, the Mahomes thing makes me want to pick the Bills. I also kind of feel like it's their year to make the Super Bowl again. But I've got the Green Bay Packers winning it all at this stage. They just looked a class above. As I say, the Rams played them really well and they accepted every challenge. Every time that bell was rung, they answered. So if you held a gun to my head... I'd be picking the Packers over the Bills in the Super Bowl on 8th of Feb. All right. Got to find a gun in that time. (laughs) See what I can do. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week has to go to UFC star Conor McGregor and one of his outlandish purchases in Abu Dhabi. It's no secret that McGregor has a lot of money from being able to kick and punch pretty good, I guess. (laughs) But whether you like him or not, you can't argue the guy is well-dressed. He loves a good suit the bling that goes with it, and he's taken it to the next level this week. He spent nearly $4 million on a pair of watches. But the more expensive of the two is a $2.7 million piece from Jacob & Co., which at the push of a button reveals a hidden sex scene. (laughs) Why? From a compartment. Well, I don't know why. You'd you'd have to ask him, but but, uh, I'd have to imagine he's just intrigued by it. I, I don't know. So you push this button and it, yeah, a little compartment opens up and there's there's a little scene there, which is basically like a Bible-styled cartoon of a guy having his way with a girl from behind, I guess is probably the easiest way to describe it. <laughs> okay. I mean, the watch itself is about 16.8 carats of diamonds. So it's it's just stupidly over the top. Oh, well, he did and spend a lot of money on it. So. And, and a lot of people have said it looks like something out of a lucky dip bag, <laughs> which is not great. It's not what you want to hear when you spend that sort of money. So now all he's got to do is learn how to tell the time. (laughs) (laughs) But it kind of got me thinking a little bit about some of the other random accessories that athletes have used in the past. I remember Shaquille O'Neal had a shoe that was actually a mobile phone. Yes, yeah, before mobile phones were big. Yeah, well, and this one was very big. Yeah, well, we know how big his feet are. I mean, the look of shock on people's faces when it actually rang was just priceless. To get smartphone. Not so much an accessory, but but something that you would use, I guess, as an accessory on the on the field. Ladanian Tomlinson's mega tint helmet grill. Ah, yes, when he got hit in the eye with a flag. 
Yep, that that to me. Yeah, he looked like a Lego man, but it, but he literally like the odds of it happening. He got mm. hit in the eye with a flag, and so for the rest of his career, he had a Lego man helmet, which was one of the coolest things yeah. I've ever seen. Then there's the whole glasses thing. There've been a heap of guys who have worn glasses to games without actually having frames in them because they can see just fine. Yes, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook jump out straight away for that. And shout out to Kurt Rambis for his encore. Class. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Kurt Rambis and the likes of Daniel Vittori as well going to ah, the yes, world. Ah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. But at the Sydney Olympics, Addo Bolden wore some glasses that wrapped across the top of his. Oh, I remember those. It looked like something out of Demolition Man. It yeah. Was- Phenomenal. Yeah, and there was there was a poker player that wore glasses like that too. Was it Jackarama? Jack, he had like Jack all this Arama. assortment of of uh, sunglasses that he'd wear. There yeah. were a few. Greg Raymer wore the ones with the little holograms in them, so that you couldn't get a read on him. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, like the uh, reflective ones. But McGregor well and truly tops them all. I mean, oh, this yeah, thing it's is not even close. Just ridiculous. Not even close. So for finding time for pornographic imagery, all I can say is bloody hell. <laughs> what do you like? Bloody hell. Now, Shui, obviously we'll get to the fourth test in a second, but there's been a massive innings from Sophie Devine that we cannot ignore. Hats off to her. Jeez. Yeah, massive congrats to her. So she's recorded the fastest ever T20 hundred in women's cricket, reaching the milestone of just 36 balls. Oh, it's absurd. In the Wellington Blazers' 10-wicket win over Otago Sparks. Otago made seven for 128 off their 20 overs. Not a massive score, but defendable. Defendable. It took Wellington just 8.4 overs to reach it. Well, given Devine's knock, I'm surprised it wasn't less. Well, exactly right. So she finished 108 not out of 38 balls with nine fours and nine sixes. All five of the Otago bowlers went for at least 11 and a half and over, including White Ferns bowler Hayley Jensen, who was none for 36 off two. Wow. And 28 of those coming off her second. Devine's second 50 came from just 15 balls, a truly divine innings. Or divine intervention. Possibly. Mm. Either way, pretty bloody good. Absolutely. Very bloody good. Now, speaking of very bloody good, more hats off, this time to the Indian team. Yeah, we need about 15 hats. Just We do, we do. And we do have a lot of hats for our different sporting teams. But I am so impressed with the way the Indians have gone this whole tour. They've only had their captain for one test match. And they're in the position to, they're odds-on favourites to reclaim the Border Gavaskar Trophy. Now, I don't think they'll win. But a draw is enough. And at one all, a bit of rain around. Oh, a lot of rain around. Yep. India could very well retain the trophy. Yeah, I mean, how could India possibly win this test match? They go into it. The Australian bowlers had 1,033 wickets to their names. The Indian bowlers had 13. Yeah. From the first test of the series, the Indian players that were playing in the fourth test were Mayanka Garwal, Chiteshwar Pujara and Ajinkya Rahane. And Pujara and Rahane are the only two that have played all of all the four, games. All four, yeah. It's in, nuts. In contrast, nine of the 11 Aussies have played in all four yep. of them. It was only Warner and Harris yeah, who, who weren't playing. Yep. There was this graphic that went up today that just showed how remarkable it was. It showed that it would be like Australia only retaining Labuschagne, Burns and Head and replacing everyone else. Oh. Do you think we would make 100? Oh, that's it doesn't bode well, does it? It really doesn't. Yeah. So, so yeah, And they're the, they're the touring team. And they've gone through quarantines and all sorts. So, it's 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 so impressive. And granted, these blokes that came in for this test are a bit older. They're not like 20-year-olds. So they're nearly 30-year-olds, actually. They've been around. I think the youngest of them is 27. So they have been around for a while. But hey, when opportunity knocks, you've got to take it. And they have. I mean, one other thing as well. We obviously talk about how the Gabba is a fortress. When the, yeah, Aussies, yeah. when, when the Aussies make 300-plus batting first at the Gabba, They've lost once in 26 tests. They've won 17 of them and drawn eight. Mm. They made 369. 
in their first innings. Mm. And it's still not looking like it's going to be enough to get that, yeah. that extra win. So, yeah, yeah. But they go on and they make this big score and you're expecting, right, it's going to be all she wrote. Mm-hmm. India's first innings was going to script, six for 186. And they could have rolled over and no one in world cricket would have been surprised and no one would have no one begrudged would, them no for it. Yeah, no one would blame them because they're so underdone. Yeah. With, oh, and you've got and a tail wag. And you've got Washington Sundar yeah. and Shahdul Thakur. Yeah, don't, don't call, call me too back. Yeah, yeah. And the Aussies are probably thinking, right, all out, 2 yeah. to 10, here we go. Yeah. They put on 123. Yeah, oh, some of the shots Washington was playing. Jeez. Well, Thakur was playing it like Yeah, well, he played, played some pretty played good shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's that similar problem to the previous test. We don't always seem to have that killer instinct to finish teams off. It goes all the way back to the Ben Stokes test in England. Yeah, where, well. Like how many balls did Jack Leach chew up in there? Yeah, that well, yeah, that was complicated for various reasons it, it because was. we blew a... Pretty yeah. obvious error. We blew a referral, yeah. And, and a run out as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But no. Yeah, well, yeah. But just far too many balls way outside off stump. Pointless bounces going 20 feet over the batsman's head. They did have a bit of luck, but they could have attacked the stumps more. Oh, they, they should have. Mitchell, yeah, yeah. Mitchell Stark bowls a great Yorker, and he's bowling these, these rubbish balls miles outside the stumps. I mean, he's struggling. I'd almost consider dropping him. Oh, there's a lot of talk about that. You're not the only one. I would drop there's him. A lot of, if this was a five-test series, there's a lot of people saying he wouldn't be playing yeah, in the fifth. I would have Sean Abbott in. I don't mind that at all. There's, oh, there's a few guys. There's Nessa. There's Jai Richardson. There's a few guys around the place. I would give it to Abbott personally. Yeah, yeah. Well, Abbott's, I mean, Abbott's 12th man. He's he's next probably in line. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my thoughts are if you put enough balls down there, eventually they're going to nick off. That's just the way it is with tailenders usually. In a test where we need to wrap up the tail quickly because of obviously the rain that you've mentioned. Yeah, yep. We let those guys bat another 45 overs after going six wickets down. Oh, I couldn't believe it. So so they were six down. We went to a family lunch. I came home and it was only just change of innings, like hours later. Yep. I could not believe it. Couldn't believe it. Now, in our first innings, after going six down, we only lasted 16 overs. Yeah. So it's nearly three times as long. That's on top of the 43 overs that Vahari and Ashwin batted out in the third test as well. So... You know, instead of keeping that nagging line outside off stump that removed all of the top order batsmen, we lose patience. We try and bounce them out or tempt them with pies. It's just crazy. Instead and they've of- been more patient with the bat than our players have, Matty Wade being one of the key culprits. Yep, exactly. So instead of a 150-run lead, we lead by 33 after the first innings. Yeah, very disappointing. Now, obviously, we need quick runs because we have to win the match. I mean, drawing it isn't enough, as you've said. So, you know, we start really well. And unfortunately, you're starting to see some of the cracks open up. Mohamed yeah, Siraj yeah. bowled absolutely beautifully. You know, a beautiful rising ball to get rid of Steve Smith. Oh, there was a peach. Yeah, nearly had Clipping Tim, his thumb. Yeah, nearly had yeah. Tim Payne a couple of balls later with the same thing. You know, the good news for us is if we can get out there tomorrow the bowlers will be loving that. Mm. A decent, oh, yeah, decent yeah. sort of chance to, yep. to get some wickets there. Yep. But I have to say, geez, the Indians have uncovered an absolute gem with Mohamed Siraj. Yeah, well, will he jump ahead of Ishant Sharma? Oh, well and truly. Yeah. Well yep. and truly. I'm, I'm kind of surprised Ishant's still knocking about in Test mm. Arena, to be honest. The other question is, Julie, did we bat too long? Oh, well and truly. Today. We, we Knowing de- rain was around. We definitely missed a trick not coming out and playing a little bit more aggressively. I think that there were, I mean, look, Cameron Green struggled. He was very, very poor to start his innings off in terms of the strike rate. It wasn't, wasn't pushing singles enough. He was, he was blocking or leaving a lot. You know, when you, when you're trying to 
win. I know at one stage I think he was about 14 off 70 odd, and it's like you've got to be, you've got to be better than that. At that same amount of balls, Steve Smith had already made his 50. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, definitely they missed a trick there. Sadly, he didn't make much more. Well, no, not really. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, India bowled incredibly well. You've you've got to say that. Yeah, oh, it's they've done a tremendous job. No matter what happens, they can go with their heads held very, very high indeed. Yeah. So day five, I guess, is pretty simple. Attack, attack, attack. We've got to have yep. three slips and a gully in. We've got to have guys under the bat, leg, yep. leg slips, whatever it is. Bowl the lines we bowled when they made 36. Yep. The school of thought is that India won't go for the win, even though they probably could. We saw how well Pat batted, mm. <laughs> although this pitch is maybe a bit more volatile. Yeah, true. But, uh, yeah, we need 10 wickets, and I'm not convinced we'll get them. Oh, I don't think we will, Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, they're just better at batting time than us. They're and patient. I, and I think the weather will definitely play yeah, a huge part, Yeah, we'll lose part, some time too. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing about the weather is bad light as well. Yep. So even if the rain stops, bad light can stop play as well. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think this is going to end in a draw, and the Indians retaining the Border Gavaskar Trophy. And if they do, full credit to them. Yeah, they deserve it. Absolutely. They really do. Absolutely. All right, Stewie, you know what that music means. What are you at for? I mean, it's definitely day five of the test tomorrow, if it actually goes ahead. <laughs> Better chance than the Australian Open. Yeah, well, I think we're pretty amped for clear skies over Brisbane. Yes, indeed. It'd be nice to take the Baby Dick trophy back, named after Indian <laughs> domestic batsman Sachin Baby and former Victorian Andrew Dick. And I'm also looking forward to getting some NBL this week with a wife at home. How about yourself? Well, it's got to be the NFL playoffs, of course. Championship game. To quote Patrick Mahomes, hashtag anything is possible. Anything is possible! Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex.